Listener Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, the day after the war began on Ukraine. We'll bring you our interview with tech billionaire Mike Cannon-Brooks in the second half of The Briefing, but first to a special edition of our headlines where we'll focus exclusively on the unfolding Russian war on Ukraine. It is Friday the 25th of February. You're with Tom Tilley and Katrina Blowers. Russia has launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. So that's what residents in the Ukrainian capital of Kiev have been hearing, air raid warnings ringing out and missiles hitting key military targets like this airport in the west of the country. What we know is at least 40 people have been killed in Russian airstrikes so far. Russia has also invaded the southern Ukrainian city of Kherson near Crimea. 22-year-old university student Vitaly Shutov lives there. Today I woke up in the morning and I heard some bombing. Uh, like my apartment was trembling. Honestly, I'm very terrified about what's going on and I'm really scared for like uh, our troops. Russians are trying to make us panic and leave the country. But um, I hope that we stand strong and we will fight. So it's understood the Russian president filmed his declaration of war three days before launching the full-scale invasion. So that means this recording happened as the UK, the US, even Australia were still calling for peace. Now, this is essentially his justification for war. Vladimir Putin saying it is in response to genocide on Russians in Ukraine. It aims to protect people who have been bullied and subjected to genocide by the Kiev regime for eight years. For that, we will strive to demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine and will bring to justice those who committed multiple bloody crimes against civilians, including Russian citizens. That translation from Reuters. So we're going to break with our normal uh, headlines format and cross to SBS World News reporter Ben Lewis. We spoke to him just minutes before publishing this episode. He's on the ground in Lviv in the west of Ukraine. Ben, thanks so much for joining us on The Briefing. What do we know about the scale, the location and the ferocity of the attacks so far? What we do know is that in the very early hours of this morning, there was a barrage of missiles striking key Ukrainian military assets and most of the major airfields around the country. A few hours after that, when the light started to come up, we saw uh, Russian troops coming in via land, coming in from the north, from Belarus, coming in from the south, from Crimea, and coming in from the east, from the separatist territories there. And then in the middle of the day, a second barrage of missiles again striking military targets the situation changes rapidly. There's conflicting information on a lot of things. For example, at one point, it looked like the Russians had taken the Chernobyl nuclear plant. Then it looked like Ukraine had won it back. And now it looks like Russia is in control of it again. It's hard to get an exact picture of what's going on in which parts of Ukraine, but it's fair to say this is a multi-front assault. And it is essentially the sort of invasion that Western officials had been saying was going to happen. So what do we know so far about what the Ukrainian response has been. We're hearing that the president has imposed martial law. 
Yeah, he has. And look, that is partly a technicality. It essentially means the population can be controlled a little easier when required. He's also said that if anyone wants to fight, they can come and get weapons from their local army branch, essentially. Uh, and this country has a huge number of reservists as well, given the conflict that's been going on in the East for so long. So there are many people who are willing to fight. As for how the actual uh, enlisted forces at the moment are going, it's really hard to say. We do know that they have suffered heavy casualties. Russia has also suffered quite a lot of casualties as well. At least a couple of their uh, planes and helicopters have been downed. It really is difficult to say at the moment how things are going. We know that they've been holding the line relatively well in the east and in the north on the Belarus border, but less successfully in the south. A, a better picture of how things are going at the moment will probably emerge in the next day or so. You talked about Russian strikes on Ukrainian military targets. Do you have a sense of what the Russian strategy is here, how they're going about this and what they plan to do in the short term? Well, step number one was clearly to take out Ukraine's uh, aerial capabilities, both air defence systems and the air bases that their jets take off from and and land from. And the Russians already had a huge aerial superiority anyway, and now they effectively control the skies over Ukraine. We know that there are still some Ukrainian jets in the sky, but certainly nothing compared to the Russian forces. So the plans seem to be to take out those key airfields and then also uh, major military sites because that is where ammunition is stored. It is where troops are, are being stationed and being sent to before they go off to fight. So clearly they were trying to disable Ukraine's military as quickly as they could initially before moving in on the ground. It is unlikely we have seen the last of the missile barrages. And also it appears at this stage there has been no amphibious landing, uh, no one coming in on the Sea of Azov to the southern coast, but that could well change in the coming days. What's the sense among residents we're seeing on social media just utter horror and disbelief? That is the amazing thing. I've been in Ukraine on and off now for the, the last three months, really. And the number of people you spoke to who said, yes, we're preparing for it, we're training, we're, we're making sure we've got everything stockpiled if we need it, but this isn't really going to happen. A Russian president is not going to invade Ukraine, you know, a brother nation, just because he wants to, because he wants to challenge NATO, because he wants to enforce neutrality in the country next door. Uh, people are absolutely stunned that this is actually happening. And you see that when you see these scenes of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people fleeing Kiev at the moment. Many people simply said, look, we'll leave the city, but it's not going to happen. So we don't need to do it soon. Well, many people probably would have preferred to do it sooner rather than now. It really is hard to overstate the shock that many Ukrainians are feeling right now. People have lived with Russian threats, Russian aggression here, but no one really thought Vladimir Putin was going to pull the trigger. So how would you sum up the international response? Because it seems like so far sanctions have been uh, all they've been able to bring in. What do locals think about the, the response from NATO, the European countries, the Americans? It's an interesting one. Locals are well aware that NATO troops are not going to come into Ukraine and defend the country. And so many people have spoken to have said, look, this is our fight. We understand that. We know why the US and Europe don't want to get involved on the ground with troops and we respect that. But, you know, if you keep giving us money, if you keep giving us weapons, that's very much appreciated. 
as for sanctions, there is a little bit of frustration among many Ukrainians and the government. They wanted the big sanctions to be put in place before an invasion. The United States and Europe essentially said there's no point in doing that. We want them to act as a deterrent. Obviously, they didn't act as a deterrent at all. Now, the sanctions that are in place already, I mean, they've had a huge effect on the Russian stock market. I think 40% of its, of its value has been wiped off in a single day, that will have a big effect on the Russian economy. Russia is going to become an incredibly isolated country. But I think Ukrainians probably would like to see more from the West. And the thing that's often referred to as the nuclear option is cutting Russia out of the SWIFT international payment transfer mm. system. That would have an enormous effect. And so far, particularly European countries are reluctant to, uh, to take that step. So we've heard of of residents fleeing. Do you have any idea of how many people are on the move at the moment? It really is impossible to say. So speaking to colleagues in Kiev trying to get out today, I'm in Lviv at the moment in the west of the country. It was almost impossible to get onto the highways out of town and Ukrainian roads are not fantastic at the best of times. There would be hundreds of thousands of people trying to leave Kiev at the moment, which is a city of about three and a half million people. And here in Lviv, people have been arriving steadily throughout the day. Many people are staying with friends and relatives in the region. The idea being that Western Ukraine is a far safer place to be. It's close to the Polish border. It's close to a NATO country and the European Union. That said, there have still been airstrikes in the area as well, so nowhere is entirely safe. But the United Nations uh, Refugee Council suggests there could be millions of people becoming refugees because of this conflict, all heading to Western Ukraine. Countries like Hungary and uh, Slovakia and Poland will all be expected to take up the slack and help out. They will do that. But this is a huge number of people and at a difficult time of year. It is still winter. It is still very cold. This is not a good time to be without home or shelter. Ben, great to speak to you. Thank you so much for all of that information and being available to us on the briefing. Cheers, guys. So that was Ben Lewis from SBS. What did you make of that, Katrina? Oh, I just really feel for anyone on the ground and and externally, I know everyone's asking the question, is this going to be the start of World War Three? I mean, the UK has reacted by imposing its largest ever set of economic sanctions on Russia. Um, the US is still using that language to Australia. Uh, for what, what it's worth, we've said we won't commit troops. So it's a scary time though, Tom. Yeah, it is. And it's just a shame. I, I feel like Europeans were so scarred by World War II that they don't want another war. But Vladimir Putin seems to live in another time. He's a revisionist dictator. He wants to take Russia back to where it was before the end of the Soviet Union in 1991. So he's he's wanting to take it back in time and he's willing to spill blood to do so. Mm. So just a vastly different set of values and priorities and a lot of bloodshed is going to be the price of that, which is just... I guess on a basic human level, it's just so disappointing. Yeah. All right, in just a moment, our interview with Mike Cannon-Brooks. All right, uh, let's change tact and go to our interview with Aussie tech billionaire Mike Cannon-Brooks, who's created a lot of heat this week. 
Australian tech billionaire Mike Cannon-Brooks has launched an $8 billion takeover bid for energy giant AGL. We need to ensure that our coal-fired generation of electricity runs to its life. Because if it doesn't, electricity prices go up. I think we're going to bring retail prices down. His $8 billion joint takeover bid with Brookfield being rejected by the board. So Mike Cannon-Brooks, he's 42 years old. He's the founder of Atlassian and he's putting a big chunk of his $20 billion net worth into renewable investments. So he's teamed up with Canadian fund manager Brookfield to try and take over AGL, an audacious move, one of Australia's biggest energy companies. So their plan involves buying the company for $5 billion, although they might have to pay more because AGL rejected their first <laughs> bid. But then they would invest $20 billion more to help transition this company out of its coal-fired power stations much sooner than planned and build a renewable energy powerhouse. Now, you heard a little grab of the Prime Minister saying, well, it'll just push up energy prices. Mm. Um, Mike Cannon-Brooks has a different opinion on that and many other things to Scott Morrison. Let's find out what's going on and what his plan is. Mike Cannon-Brooks, thanks so much for joining us on The Briefing. Tell us how your plan to take over AGL makes sense because with $25 billion, you could just start another renewables business from scratch, but this plan to take over AGL involves buying assets that you want to deconstruct, the coal-fired power plants. So what's the value here in taking over AGL's existing assets and redirecting this company? Look, there's a few clear strategies here. First is, as a private company, we can execute this transformation a lot faster than you can as a public company as it currently is. Secondly, bringing the capital, the $20 billion to create the replacement capacity as you move from thermal coal generation to renewable generation, being able to do that under one roof is actually a lot faster and a lot less risky, which brings the cost down, which ultimately delivers cheaper energy for consumers. I think we just bring a lot of technology and talent to attack this problem and an ambition to attack the problem. Uh, We're well aware that we need to deliver cheap, clean, reliable energy to the customers of AGL. That's the job of this business. That's what their customers are expecting. And that's... um, what we've designed this plan to do. And lastly, we've designed it to fit with all of the government's requirements, right? Bringing the replacement capacity, bringing the private capital and attacking climate change with can-do capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) One of ScoMo's favourites. But what of the existing AGL assets are of so much benefit to you that make this plan the way to go rather than just using all those skills and abilities and funds you just talked about to start something new? Starting something new from scratch is, is much more difficult. I've done that a few times it takes a lot longer. Secondly, there's a lot of, you know, fantastic assets in this business, right? Uh, The first asset would be the people. There's a lot of really great people at AGL trying to do this work and we hope we can unleash them in this direction faster. Secondly, the existing thermal generation plants aren't just the stacks and the plants themselves. There's a lot of grid infrastructure, transmission lines, real estate and land and other places that you can actually build the new assets in and around. If you look at the current plan for the Liddell turning into an energy hub, So with batteries and green hydrogen and a lot of other resources and uh, grid management devices in that particular physical location, that's an asset that's really powerful to be able to have those existing plants. And we're seeing that all over the world, people reimagining the existing plants physically into new renewable uh, hubs. And lastly, you've got the customer base. So the new energy company is going to look a lot more technology driven, a lot smarter with software and other things to manage Uh, the complexity that is our grid, having the customer base on one side and the generation on the other side, especially if you think about that generation being a lot smarter, 
You can build some of the things you need yourself, like maybe batteries. You can also contract in energy from, from solar providers and you can manage all of that with customers, their own rooftop solar and their own personal battery as well, using a lot of software. So having the customer base is actually a huge asset to be able to create that transition and, and do it all cheaper. So the AGL boss has said publicly he doesn't think the timeline you guys have put forward is possible that closing coal power plants by 2030 just can't be done. Why do you think you guys can do it and they can't? Uh, well, firstly, you should let us have a go then. Um, <laughs> I've backed myself some pretty long odd situations. Uh, secondly, AEMO thinks it can be done, right? Uh, our market operators integrated systems plan in the, the, the most likely path and the least cost path, I would say, has almost all coal gone by 2030 or 2032. If you look at the New South Wales government plan in terms of building the renewable energy zones, they're expecting that to happen by the end of the decade as well. So most of the rest of the industry and most of the rest of the investments are assuming that that coal has to be replaced. And it's not just shutting it down, right? We're talking about replacement. Shutting it down doesn't help. That drives prices up. You have to deliver the replacement at the same time and do that in a managed and sensible way, right? We're doing it urgently, but we're doing it sensibly. And so we, we definitely believe that almost everybody else is lined up to say that this, this has to happen by the end of the decade. And there's a huge amount of investment, tens of billions of dollars already going into transmission in both New South Wales and Victoria, going into new solar farms, et cetera. The last part is the certainty of the timeline will actually accelerate the timeline. A lot of the things in this large energy market are around the cost of capital. And so the more certainty people have that their project is going to be profitable, if I'm out there building a solar farm, it's going to be delivered about two years from now, somewhere in 2024, 2025. I want to know what the market's going to look like at that time. Unstable energy policy and unclear other participants in the market drive my cost up. My risk is higher. So we're trying to give certainty to the market, which I believe will be far further ahead. The last thing I will say is we've been constantly surprised every year over the last 10 years at the pace of this transition. When you're constantly surprised that something is moving faster than you thought, I suspect that constant surprise continues and it continues to move faster than everyone thinks. And so is that the, the key difference in a way between your vision and AGL's current vision that, that you have a different prediction on how quickly that transition will happen? We have a different belief that we can execute that transition at a certain pace, yes. A vastly different belief. I would say it's not just us though, right? If you look at what both state governments are doing, what Origin has just said with Erarang, mm. what the integrated systems plan and the market operator is saying, and what generally has happened, every forecast for how much renewable we would have in the grid, we're basically beating every single year. If you look at how much rooftop solar people are putting in, we are beating those forecasts. So when you continue to predict something and predict it less than actually happens year in, year out, I think there's a weight of evidence that it's going to happen far faster. Again, the company is saying they're going to run these things until 2045. Mm. So bringing that forward a decade is 2035, 15 years is 2030. I can't find a single other person who believes these things will still be running into the 2040s. So the instant reaction from the Prime Minister and the Energy Minister was that this plan is going to push up energy prices. And I guess that's the fear, not just from individual consumers, but also big businesses. You've said that that's not based in fact. This will in fact push prices down. But will there be a little window period there where the energy supply is a little shaky? Uh, there should be no window where the energy supply is shaky, no. The more predictability and stability we can give to the market, 
the less chance that there is any period where that happens. I don't believe there should be a period where that happens. Lastly, we have the lowest energy prices we have in eight years. The government's very fond of saying that. Mm. The reason that is, is because we've passed 30% renewables in the grid and renewables are a far, far cheaper way of generating energy. The faster we can get renewables into our grid, the faster we can go from 30% to 70% to 80% to 90%, the faster we will bring prices down. That is well-backed, in fact. They are fond of celebrating why they're so low at the moment, yet they won't be low in the future if this keeps going. It's just not logical. So yes, I, I truly believe we will bring prices down in doing this. The alternate plan, the company's demerger plan, I believe has far greater risk of moving prices upwards because it creates effectively abandoned assets without the capital to run that transition. And either the company, the shareholders, or the government are going to pay, that's your taxes, for remediation and closing those plants down or paying them to stay open if we don't have the replacement capacity available. Yeah, given the recent history of energy prices, the Prime Minister and Energy Minister's comments do seem illogical. Why do you think they're saying that? Is it so that they can be seen to be standing up for coal jobs in electorates that they want to win? I think it's people looking at the past or looking at the future, right? I don't live in the 1980s. I understand how much these things are. I understand how the market forces have changed the prices and these technologies and the pace of change. And I believe that people want to move forward and go and get these things done. We have to be incredibly empathetic to people who work in these industries. We should be thinking about their transition as much as we think about how we transition where our electrons come from. And we should certainly be doing that with pace and predictability that is understanding to them. They have to come on this journey as well. I don't think you'll find any surveys of people in any of those areas who believe that these coal plants will be running for an awful long time. That's not the belief. Now, you can take away uncertainty, but also you have to think about retraining. You have to think about job creation. You have to think about being empathetic and careful as to how you do that. People want to know what the future is going to look like and know that you've thought about them and know that you've helped them. At the moment, the plan is we're just going to drive them into a wall. And one day we're just going to turn up and shut it down and bang. And that, that is not a helpful path, which is the path we're currently on. So Mike Cannon-Brooks, where to from here? The boss of AGL is pretty unimpressed by your initial offer. When are you going to come back with a counteroffer? Look, we'll continue to talk to the company as we're doing. We're continuing to make our case. Ultimately, this is a case to be made to the shareholders and to the public about two alternate views of the future and what you want to believe and what you want to believe is possible and what future you want for Australia right? What what do you want to be proud of that we've gone and done? What do you think is going to be the best case for the shareholders? We're pretty clear that we've put a valuable offer to shareholders that we think fully values the business and is certainly a far greater value for those shareholders than the alternate plan. I'm 100% certain it's a far better plan for Australia in terms of everything, in terms of emissions and the cost of power that we'll deliver to consumers. And so we have to keep making that case and have people understand that. So we have to pay a 30% premium instead of a 4% premium on Friday's share price? (laughs) We've made our offer. We've put it on the table. We think it's a very fair one. (laughs) That is Mike Cannon-Brooks, whose investment company Grok is partnering with Brookfield to try and tank over AGL. What did you think of that, Katrina? The thing that impresses me the most about it, whether it comes off or not, is just the audacity of this plan. It's a 42-year-old guy who's putting his money where his mouth is and that ScoMo phrase of can-do capitalism, I actually think that will be ultimately what moves the needle forward in the next decade or so when it comes to tackling climate change. 
Yeah, and I think what it demonstrates is how much power is in the boardrooms and mm. within the fund managers who direct the money into these projects rather than the government. I think in the media we're constantly analysing the government's decisions in, in this space, particularly something as controversial as climate change policy. But actually, we should be focusing on these big corporate players and investment players because they have so much power over the future of these companies, which really are ultimately responsible for the emissions. All right, that's it for your Monday to Friday briefing. Uh, Jamila Rizvi will be in your feed tomorrow with the weekend briefing. Jamila, who's on this week? Hey, Tom. I want to put a disclaimer on um, the episode of the weekend briefing that you are all going to hear tomorrow. I was so nervous. I was so nervous. I was such a fangirl because Maxine Beniba-Clark is my favourite author. Not one of my favourites, my actual favourite. And if you haven't heard of her, now is the time to get on board. She is an incredible, acclaimed, award-winning author of fiction, non-fiction, children's books and poetry. But most importantly, I think this episode is a critical discussion of race, inclusion and politics. Maxine is a voice very worthy of everyone's attention. All right, have a great weekend. Thank you so much for listening. Listener.